fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we re-examine Hollywood's red-headed stepchildren. As a red-headed stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Bowell. And today we are pulling open Hollywood's crypt to review Monty Python's Life of Brian. Always look on the bright side of life. Yay! Yeah. So I wanted to start this off with a question for you, Stephanie. Last time we watched The Toxic Avenger and we came out of it agreeing that it was a tremendous piece of garbage. Did you like this one better? I did like this one better. I watched it a couple nights ago. I have only seen bits and pieces of this and it was many years ago. So I liked this one a lot better. I'm all for religious humor. I'm all for Monty Python in general. I liked this a lot. Excellent. What about you? Oh, yeah. I I love this one. It's certainly a better film than uh, Toxic Avenger. This This is one of the classics. This is a movie I think I first saw it when I was three or four because... Uh, Life of Brian and the Holy Grail were just things that my dad would play, I guess for himself, but also to have uh, also for me in there. So I I grew up to this movie and uh, I very much enjoy it. That's so cool. I love that you were watching this as a small child. So how is it aged with you as you've grown up? As I've grown up, I think the biggest thing I could take away from watching this as a 26-year-old as opposed to watching it as a four or five, six-year-old. The window dressing, like it, it, there's a lot of stuff about this movie that doesn't hold up, I think. And this blew my mind when I realized it, but Life of Brian came out almost 50 years ago. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, just there's there's an overall... There, there are some things you can point at and go, okay, that looks really cheap. I know it looked cutting edge in 1979, but it looks really cheap in, in 2018. But <laughs> I can forgive that. The comedy of this movie is timeless and a benchmark in what comedy should be. And I very much enjoy it. Before we get too yeah. much farther into it, um, for those of you who skipped Monty Python's Life of Brian, uh, here is our recap of it. Life of Brian is a story of Brian, a man who was born the same night as Jesus Christ down the street. The film takes us through a few days of Brian's adult life while poking fun at many biblical tropes and situations from that time period. Brian joins up with an independence movement after watching Jesus Christ's Sermon on the Mount, which eventually leads to him accidentally becoming a messiah figure of his own. Despite his repeated lack of interest, Brian is eventually captured by Romans and crucified along with most of the rest of the movie's cast, who end the film with a cheerful sing-along, encouraging both Brian and the audience to always look on the bright side of life. (laughs) Which is the best way to end a movie ever. I think so. Because it has nothing to do with anything. It's just like, well, we're going to sing now. Right. No, always look on the bright side of life to me is one of the one of the ultimate classic comedy endings. It's just such an absurd left turn in an already absurd film. So for those of you who haven't seen it, the film literally ends with a group of men hanging from crucifixes, probably about 20 or 30. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the cast of the movie. It's a large crew and they're all singing, always look on the bright side of life as they hang to their deaths. Yeah. <laughs> classic. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) So the movie starts with a very weird visitation from the three wise men scene. And like you said, Jesus lives down the street from Brian. And so the three wise men come to Brian's house, show up with their frankincense, gold, and myrrh, and talk to Brian's mother. And Brian's mother doesn't understand what myrrh is. And then you realize about halfway through that scene, oh my God, John Cleese is in blackface. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which, thank God, this is in the 70s because I don't think anything could get away with that now. No, exactly. I mean, so we, we talked about last time with Toxic Avenger, we talked about the problematic elements and things that the directors 
seemingly intended that are definitely very un PC and take a whole new unsettling meaning in modern day society. And I hadn't watched this in a couple of years. And even when I watched it before, I never caught that that was John Cleese in blackface. Absolutely. And <laughs> hmm. Oh boy. Oh boy. Because and to start with that, you're like, Oh, okay. I'm dealing with a piece of history. Okay. Exactly. You know, it's like, I don't, I don't, um, I don't know if we're ever going to do Young Frankenstein on here, mm-hmm. but the first time I showed my wife Young Frankenstein was maybe about a year or so ago, and I had forgotten, and she, of course, didn't know. There's absolutely a rape scene that's played for comedy in Young Frankenstein. There. <gasps> Oh, there when, is. When the monster and Madeline Kahn get together. Like, like, like that's a rape scene. And it's played for laughs oh, after the I'd, fact, but she was... Oh, I'd block that out. It, right? <laughs> this is the same wow. thing to a lesser extent. Like... Like they they don't they don't ever make a joke about it being blackface. John Cleese barely has any right. lines, but that is clearly John Cleese in blackface. And they filmed this in Tunisia, so you can't tell me that they couldn't have, if they really wanted to, gotten somebody to come sit mm. in for the third king. And right, yeah, like it. So this is where. We really have to, I guess, make a choice in a way that we didn't for Toxic Avenger because I think this is a good movie. And I think that the Pythons, the the troop of actors from the show and who are the stars of Life of Brian, like they're so much more likable and they're they're we 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 and I like them. We being just right. collective unconscious. And yet they're doing this thing that is absolutely not okay by today's standards, but clearly wasn't that big of an issue in the late 70s, 80s. Right, and to to pair that, there's also a long section of the movie where there's men dressed up as women dressed up as men. And there's a couple of transphobic lines in the movie that you kind of have to look at and examine through the times lens and go, oh, that was really funny then, but I... I don't know how that stands in today's standards. Right. So, so the other, like, yeah, let's let's examine the other super problematic thing. There is the scene of all the women buying beards because women were not allowed to go to a stoning, specifically in the movie. Right. And which is funny though. It is. It is it's funny. funny that these women are buying beards and they're like, "Oh, we're gonna dress up as men," and then they forget that they're supposed to be men. That part is hilarious. Right. So that's that's. That's problematic, but more problematic and something I'd be interested to get your take on the the transphobic or or the 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 part of the movie where we meet the Judean people's front and one of the characters says that they identify as a woman. Right. And let's let's get into this a little bit because they play it for laughs that Eric Idle's character wants to be called Loretta. And they they play right. they play up the whole thing of for laughs where uh, Loretta says he wants to have be able to have babies, and they point out that, well, you you can't have babies, but we'll fight for your right to have babies. Right. And even like like throughout the rest of the film, that specific character is referred to as Loretta. And in that way, I feel like they treat it at least a little respectfully, but I, I really want to get right. your take on it. Well, it's so interesting because then throughout the rest of the movie, Loretta is never misgendered. Right. She's always called as she. She's never dead named. They never refer to her by her name that she was before she decided she wanted to be called Loretta. So they handle it as you would want a trans person to be respected. So on that front, it's kind of nice because the character is treated well. The character is not misgendered. But on the front where it's a plot point... I don't know that that's handled well because it seems to be random 
that character isn't given much of an arc besides that point. And it really, that point is brought up to serve the comedy throughout the rest of the movie. So on that front, it's problematic because I feel like it's laughing at a woman's expense yet again. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I think it's, it has to be examined not only through what happens in the actual movie, but it has to be examined as what did the writers mean and what was their stance on it? And was this something to be mined for comedy? Right. Or was this something to make a statement out of? And I feel like the answer was it was something to be mined for comedy, but again, it's it was still at least handled in a much better way than it could have been. I want to be a woman. From now on, I want you all to call me Loretta. What? It's my right as a man. Yeah. True. The other thing that gets me uh, towards the end of the movie, um, when everyone is getting crucified... And like actually going through the line and getting their 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 crosses, there are the two jailers who are both played up as mentally deficient and having horrible speech impediments of their own until there's a gag at the end where when everyone else is away, they're just they, they start talking normally. Right, which then becomes a conversation about are they putting on these accents because these accents and impediments because that's what's expected of them and they're not expected to be more than this? Are they putting this on for their own comedy? And to that extent, I don't know if we'll ever know what was intended sure. because we'd have to go into the actor's motivation and all of that. Right. And yeah, that one that one for some reason sits less right with me because I just I get a vibe that that one was entirely played up for comedy. The Eric Idle has a character who's one of the jailers who just has a a very horrible stutter, and I think right, like that's just a a comedic bit to go from horrible stutter to then speaking normally when it's what the audience doesn't expect. Right. I think it's important to acknowledge that oh wow okay even even these guys who considered themselves progressive liberal comics of their time were still trapped in their time and i think it's in the last episode that i said saying that oh it's a product of a different time really doesn't hold water but it's an unfortunate reality that 1970 uh, 1979 had very different moral fiber than 2018 mm. and we're not even addressing the blatant anti-semitism right right absolutely i i was just going to agree with you and say that i think you're right it can't we can't just sit back on our haunches and say oh well it's a it's a product of its time and let that be okay but i think it is a product of its time in that that was what was going on. And like you said, even though these people were progressive and they were examining, they were examining political comedy and religious comedy and challenging the status quo, by our standards, it's still not where it should be. I like that, yeah. But going back to Loretta, I'm curious to see, to talk with you, Andrew, about if this breaks the Bechdel test or not. Right. Because we have two named women. Um, if we're presuming that Loretta is in fact a trans woman, Judith is also named, and Judith and Loretta, amongst the group, have a com- have a conversation about what their rights are as a group and what they believe. Right. But it's not between the two of them, so I don't know if that counts. Right. I don't. I don't know the letter of the law for the Bechdel test enough to know. Do does do the two characters have to be alone having the conversation or can they be in a part of a group? If so, Mm. and like you said, I think the key is if 
we take Loretta as a female, as a woman, then it does break mm-hmm. the Bechdel test. But it's interesting that this is this is one that this is a, this is a mo- much more subjective pass fail than most instances, I think. Right. So let's look at this the other way. If not, then this movie absolutely doesn't because Judith is the only named female character is actually female. Right. We've got Brian's mother, who was played by the director, Terry Jones, who is is a female, (laughs) but is such a caricature of a female that I wonder if, if that would count. And thinking about it, yeah, like... The conversation between Judith and Loretta is the only conversation between two female characters in the entire movie. Because Judith and the mother, well, they they have the fight when uh, when Brian's mother walks in on them the morning after. But then it's still about Brian. Right. So that's right, the other right, rule right, of the Bechdel right, test right. is that it can't be about a man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... What do you think of this movie, Andy? Well, so uh, I I think it was important for us to examine it critically and bring up the problematic elements first and to get that out of the way so that I can now say that I love this movie and it is a it is a master <laughs> class of comedy. Like yeah. I mean Monty Python's Flying Circus is one of the most well-known comedy skit groups of the past century, or at least it feels like it is to me. I'm, I'm entirely biased. As we've discussed, I, I grew up on Monty Python. I don't think, I don't think you're alone in that. In grad school, we had a classmate say that she'd never seen the pining for the fjords Mm, sketch. And we stopped class to watch the pining for the fjords sketch because we were like there is this huge gap missing in your pop culture knowledge we have to rectify this right the sure, f now sure. <laughs> no so i think it's i think it's that well known among people that it's it's in the psyche sure no i agree and i mean this is just it's 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 such a phenomenal comedy and like I'm not alone in my analysis of this. Um, there's a, a British network called Channel Four. It's one of their their more um, well-established TV programs. And as late as 2006, Channel Four was calling Life of Brian the greatest comedy ever made. Like this is a this <laughs> is a beloved movie. Um, personally, I like Holy Grail better. I want to get that out there. I think Holy Grail is a funnier movie and a more quotable movie, and between the two, the better. But this is still just such an amazing comedic film. And it helps that it's a bunch of sketch comics doing it because you could take out so many scenes of this movie and just throw them into like the sketch show and nobody would bat an eyelash. It, it all just works so perfectly that there's all these little skit vignettes within the greater movie. Right. And this is the kind of comedy that we have known to associate with capital C comedy. For a skit show, for... This is the kind of comedy you expect to see on shows like Whose Line or Saturday Night Live, is that present what you think is true and then turn it, and then turn it again, and then turn it a third time. Right. Exactly. What would they do to me? Oh, you'll probably get away with crucifixion. Crucifixion? Yeah. First offense. That's always what I've come to associate with this kind of humor, and I think Monty Python is it. It's what birthed it. Yeah. What? Uh, I, I'm curious to know. So we, there, there are several different skits throughout the movie, and I wanted to ask you what your favorite one was after watching the whole film. The biggest, thickest one, because I'm 12. (laughs) Because I am a 12-year-old girl, apparently. The one where the centurions legitimately could not, even in acting, could not keep their stuff together because they had to laugh at biggest, thickest. 
And why is Big as Dick is funny? Just so good. Oh, no, yeah, that's that's a classic. Um, Michael Palin, I don't know how he keeps a straight face through any of that. That's <laughs> that's a great answer. That's a yeah. great skit. Uh, mine is hands down the stoning scene. That is that is uh, the funniest yes. part of the movie also for good. me. The whole beginning of the the Sermon on the Mount leading into the stoning scene was just like double punch, oh, pow, yeah. pow. So funny. Where they can't hear Sermon on the Mount, so they're misinterpreting it from a distance. Blessed, blessed are the Greeks? Oh, why bless them? And then following straight into all these women who have beards forgetting that they're supposed to be men and sounding like women and then halfway through remembering they're supposed to be men. Right. I mean, it's just like you, you break it down and it's just, it's jokes upon jokes upon jokes. It's jokes all the way down. You start off with the haggler, the guy, uh, the guy selling stones to these women just outside of like, like just down the hill from where the stoning's taken place. And this movie had a weird right. thing of haggle humor I didn't, I didn't mind it at all, but I, I kept yeah. noticing it again and again and again. Did you not pick up on that as a kid the first couple oh, times you saw it? Oh, not at all. No, no, no. Huh. Yeah. I wonder if it's because as a kid you have, like, no concept of money. You're like, parents buy this for me. And then as an adult, you're like, yes, haggle them down. Haggle <laughs> right. them down. I'm just like... <laughs> Uh, okay, we'll, we'll we'll take we'll we'll take two two large ones and a, and a small one. Oh, okay, you get two small ones for the price of one. Okay, two small ones and a bag of gravel. But you've got the you've got the <laughs> the, the the haggler. You've got the all the women in beards. Like there there isn't an actual man in that crowd except for Brian, who was dragged along by his mother. You, you've got the instance where you can't say Jehovah. <laughs> and the fact that the guy getting stoned <laughs> is is being stoned to death just for saying Jehovah. And then they start stoning each other because they're all saying right, Jehovah. Right, they all start stoning each other because they're just trained that, okay, I'm going to throw a rock at whoever says Jehovah because it means I get to throw a rock. <laughs> um, and, and John Cleese <laughs> like, just rounds it all out. I love his character as the the officiant or or the whoever he's supposed to be the guy running the stoning treating it like it's a classroom and people are throwing around balls of paper when he in fact gets like beamed by a rock that somebody threw <laughs> who threw that stone no and so i'd never seen this movie on netflix i had only ever watched it before um on my dad's actual VHS copy. And an interesting thing happened that I noticed on Netflix is every time one of these, like the funniest parts of the movie would end, a little box came up that said, do you want to watch that again? Or it was like a little replay box. And that was so fascinating. Yeah. Really? Um, Netflix like knows, Hey, this is the funniest part of the movie. Do you just want to go ahead and like binge this scene again? I didn't see that. I didn't do that on mine. But maybe we have different Netflixes. Maybe, I don't know. I like the twisting of the really well-known scriptures, much like the the Greek shall inherit the earth. I also really liked, consider the lilies. Why the lilies? What have they done? <laughs> right. I think to appreciate that, you have to at least have some, some religious background, but a, like a very basic religious background of these are the really well-known bits. Right. Or even then just the, the, you gotta be familiar with the idea of proselytizing or, or, or standing up yeah. and making prophetic speeches, which the movie right. gives you a little bit of a primer on when you see there's all the, all the, the crazy dude, um, who looks like he hasn't showered in his entire life and just the the row of people on stages down the street each proclaiming their own thing. I actually think that that was one of the better instances of the Pythons poking fun at organized religion. Um, I really appreciated right. that absurdity and the fact that Brian literally falls ass backwards into 
having to do the same thing and just coming up with whatever is on the top of his head and gaining a cult following based off of it. Um, I really thought that the Pythons did a great job poking fun at that aspect of religion because it's a fairly, it's, it's a relatable bit of religious satire. The idea that you can have five different people shouting five different prophecies and they're probably Mm -hmm. all full of it. Right. There's a joke in ministry where if you can't do teach, if you can't teach, become a minister. (laughs) And I feel like this so perfectly captures that. Like you said, Brian falls ass backwards onto a, onto a stage of sorts and starts proselytizing among the row of other people proselytizing, which was an actual thing that happened in Jesus's times. There were so many, quote, messiahs, right. unquote. And Jesus was just one of them, which I think speaks to religion's tendency to or at least westerns religions tendency to be like it's this one it's the greatest when in reality there are so many religions out there exactly yeah no i uh i think part of the reason this movie works aside from just the fact that the pythons know how to do sketch humor and they know how to write out funny scenes i think that the way they poked fun at organized religion and just all these other facets of that time frame worked brilliantly. Mm -hmm. Can you give me an example? Yeah, so to get into it, I mean, like one of the things that I think they spend more time making fun of than even religion is just the politics of the era. There's the bit where Brian falls in with the uh, Judean People's Front. And we have a whole scene of them making their plans and trying to organize their own stuff. But the whole time, they're also making snipes at another group that's called the People's Front of Judea. And you have the Mm -hmm. Judean Liberation League, which consists of a single guy. And they point at him and they all scream, Splitter! You've got, there's there's at least like five different political groups aside from the Roman government themselves who are all similarly named, all clearly going after the same thing, but all have this intense hatred and rivalry for one another. And that struck very close to me for what organized Christianity and, and denominational Christianity has done in the time since this movie took place. You know, you've got Methodist, Lutheran, Catholic, Roman Catholic, Irish Catholic, uh, you know, just, just denominations upon denominations. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not even something that is unique to this movie to poke fun at the fact that denominate different denominations of Christianity tend to really be bothered and upset by one another and this idea that we're both worshiping god but you're worshiping god the wrong way consider the lilies search what a heckle no in the field what's wrong with it then? nothing take it consider the lily mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i know a lot of protestants have extreme problems with catholics quote praying to saints which if you've ever talked to a catholic is not what they <laughs> right. do and it's, but it's almost villainized as like, oh, well, those people believe in saints and they pray to saints. And it's like, no, that's one, that's not the point of it. But two, it's exactly what you're talk about, talking about. It vilifies anyone who worships in a different way. Totally. Um, so there, there's that. There's uh, something that never, that I, some bit that I had missed before is there's the moment where the Judean people's front are trying to like, like they're getting themselves up in a fervor and being like, yeah, what did the Romans ever do for us? Oh, they, they, they made plumbing. Okay. Yes. They made, they, they made plumbing, but aside from plumbing, (laughs) what did they do? Oh, well they made the roads. Well, the roads go without saying. And the schools. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, sure. (laughs) The, uh, the idea that industrial expansionism you know, poking fun at the fact that in any instance where an empire comes in and makes 
um, an area or a country that is less developed than it, they kind of raise it up to the level that the conquering nation is at. I mean, you you, you can't sit here and say that things aren't better. Hmm. Um, so just stuff like that. And, and so I guess I, the other one that really comes to my head, this is one of my favorite moments of the movie. After Brian develops a following, he, he, his followers get obsessed with a gourd that he didn't want, but in another bit of haggling comedy, he winds up with a gourd that he just hands to this woman, and then he loses his shoe, and another follower picks up the shoe, and then the followers just start, like, getting in, in each other's faces about, we must follow the gourd! No, 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 we must follow the shoe! No, exactly. the shoe! <laughs> yes, and how, like how vitriolic that moment becomes of like, no, this is the true chosen way. No, this is the true chosen way. It's such brilliant. Right. In the, in the world where Brian's doctrine survives and lasts, you know, thousands of years, that's where then you have the first Brian church of the gourd versus the first Brian church of the sandal. And, and, you know, you see how this, none of these things matter. They're both accidental, but, the zealous people put their own meaning into each of these different objects and then go at each other's throats about it. Right. In much the same way that actual religious people do of, we believe this, well, we believe this. Absolutely. And you're wrong. Yeah. Another example of that is how two of the political activist groups um, show up at the same place with the same plan. And instead of banding together and both kidnapping Pilot's wife and doing it more so successfully because one of them could have killed the guards or disarmed the guards and the other group could have stolen Pilot's wife and they could have come together and achieved their goals much more quickly and easily, they then fight within Pilot's palace and all end up dead. Right. And there's there's the one moment where... You've got the two groups and somebody somebody calls out, wait, wait, guys, we shouldn't be fighting each other. Remember who the true enemy is. And they all think about it for a moment. And then they list a third revolutionary group instead of the Romans. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's comedy gold. It's comedy gold, but it's also very indicative of how activism can work, too. Like, oh, we're lefty in this way. Well, we're lefty right. in this way. Right. And you're wrong. Well, we're vegans and we don't befriend vegetarians well we're vegetarians and we think you're being snobby and it's like oh my god okay we can all agree eating animals is wrong but sometimes animals are delicious let's move on with life anyway so this is the thing that like i i am a christian and i don't get any more denominational than that i i think the church that i go to leans more methodist but it's not a methodist church how do you how do you mean it leans methodist i mean that i go to a place called calvary chapel and i really like gun to my head i don't know what the doctrine is i'm trying to look it up right now Hmm. like i don't go to a methodist church i don't go to a catholic church i don't go to a lutheran church i go to a sure. church. Is it, um, are you confirmed on that church? I've been baptized by, with that church. In, in baptizing, did you take a class where they talked about the doctrine no. of that church? Interesting. So this is like a rebel church. Pretty much. <laughs> Specifically, I've, I've pulled up the website um, and the church, the church's mission statement follows agape. Isn't agape one of the... Greek terms for one of the three main types of love. Yes. Yeah. Specifically the mission okay. statement is we believe that the only true basis of Christian fellowship is his love, Kape, which is greater than any differences we possess and without which we have no right to claim ourselves Christians. Um, Andy, your church is punk. <laughs> my church is punk rock. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I bring, I bring this up to say that to, to really, I guess define my faith and to sit here and say that I am not a practicing Catholic. I am not a Protestant. I am not a Methodist. I am a Christian. And there are some people that raise an eyebrow to that and say, well, why can't you get more denominational? And, and to them, I, I go in, eh. 
<laughs> but to get to my point, like I, I sit here and watch this movie as a Christian and I don't get terribly offended and outraged by the humor and the things that the Pythons made fun of because despite the fact that Life of Brian is the Christian one, the religious one, the one where they make fun of religion, they really get into so much more than that. And the satire and the comedy goes into much more than just trying to poke fun at my faith. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, even a thing about the pre-production of this movie, it it started off as a joke. Like they were uh, they were making Monty Python's Holy Grail, and people from the media kept asking, "Okay, what's the next movie? What's the next movie? What's the next movie?" And I think it was Eric Idle made something about like, "Oh, the the trials and lust of Jesus Christ." And he just threw that out as a joke and everyone else started throwing it out as a joke. And the media, of course, took this as not a joke and started talking about it. And they went, oh, well, I guess we need to make a religious one now. And in the writing of this movie, the the Pythons talked about it and basically decided, OK, we're not we're not interested in making fun of Jesus Christ because we're looking at what he had to say and you know what we don't have any problem with what he had to say and there's no reason to poke fun at it in this way and that's how it changed to being about Brian a Christ adjacent figure even though calling him Christ adjacent it's really just in situation only right and he's i think Brian is so much not worthier but so much more interesting of a focus because we already know the Jesus story. Sure, um, that's a good point. So putting Brian in the center, it's nice to see how crowd behavior works, how cult religion behavior works. I think the Pythons did a really good job of examining this is how things can accidentally become a movement because of crowd psychology. And isn't it interesting how you can fall backwards into it, how people become very passionate about a lackluster message very quickly because they identify with it. Um, Or how the character of Judith falls in with Brian probably wouldn't have given him a second glance until he became a messiah. And then all of a sudden, oh, she's really into Brian (laughs) because he's the messiah. Right. You want to talk about how Brian is a more interesting character. He only joins the uh, Judean people's front because he has a crush on Judith. And then after he, he gains this following, which he absolutely does not want. He, he pretty much immediately starts running from his own zealous followers. Once he, uh, he meets back up with Judith and discovers that she is totally into this new thing. He sleeps with her. (laughs) Right. Right. Now you listen here. He's not the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy. And I wonder when Judith leaves Brian to hang at the very end of the movie to be crucified, does she leave him because she believes in him for the cause of the activism? Like, how are we supposed to feel about Judith's actions at the end of the movie? That's a really good question. I think we are to take her as sincere in that she does believe him. She, she grossly misunderstands his predicament and his situation and thinks that he is trying to martyrize himself and is really proud Mm -hmm. of him for doing that. And right. uh, There's, it, it it reminds me, you know, there's a, one of my favorite comics is Sam Kinison, who has a very interesting take on religious humor but uh, he's got a joke about Jesus on the cross where like his followers are looking up at him going, huh, it, it, it's a shame he has to die. And Jesus is up there going, well, if somebody got a ladder and some pliers, I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me a lot like that. This yeah. idea of, oh, oh, he he wants to martyr himself. And that's so amazing. And I, I would never get in the way of him killing himself for the cause. Yeah, it also reminded me, I've read um, Lamb by Christopher Moore within the past three or four years. And Lamb is the tale of Jesus as told by his closest friend. (laughs) And so you follow Jesus 
through this completely non-apocryphal version of his childhood and teenagehood that kind of veers in a weird way, similarly to, like, the tale of Batman. Like, he definitely has a period where they're wandering through Upper Mongolia and he lives with monks, and I'm like, didn't Batman also <laughs> at one point live in Upper... I'm pretty he sure. Did, he did, indeed. But, okay, good. I'm glad I'm glad to know that I have my Batman storyline correct. But so it, it follows the idea of who Jesus was as watched by his closest friend. And it's that same tale of, like, I have this pressure put upon me. I don't know that I really want it, but it's what's expected of me. Mm, okay. And I think that's a... I finished that book and I was like, this is the closest I've felt to feeling like I've understood Christ in a really long mm. time. And it came from a non-religious, totally, probably very offensive to lots of people book. But... And it's not at all truth. It's completely an act of fiction. But I thought it was so interesting of how it like how it examined that Christ may not have wanted the burden that was put on him. Sure. So I totally get to turn it all back to life of Brian. I totally get Brian at the end saying like, oh, Judith, you're here. Cool. Help me down. And she's like, oh, I'm so proud of you for doing what right. you've done. And he's like, wait, what? No, that's it, it's definitely interesting. I'm I'm not as familiar with Lamb, so I I think it's funny that that hits a lot of the same tones for you, and like the thing with Brian at the end is it it it's another bit. It's to bring this back to the beginning of the conversation. I think it's definitely the Pythons making a bit of it the way that everyone every possible avenue of sal- uh, of escape <laughs> to use salvation would be an ironic term here um, every avenue of escape <laughs> is lost to Brian Judith thinks that he is doing this for the cause his mother just you know mutters about oh oh great you're leaving me alone now oh man what a son I have who leaves his poor mother alone and wanders off to let him die uh, and there's the instance where one of the insurrectionist groups of Judea runs up with swords in hand to the group of people and then commits suicide because that'll show the Romans. Yeah. One thing that we haven't talked about at all, speaking of random <laughs> left turns, is the random left turn where there is suddenly an alien <laughs> spaceship scene. I love that scene so much. What? <laughs> the hell? <laughs> do you have any background on why that happened? I, I actually do. So the movie was directed by Terry Jones, but it was almost directed by Terry Gilliam, who is the director of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, as well as Time Bandits, Brazil, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Twelve Monkeys. Just he, He's a very well-known director in his own right. And... He directed that scene. It's one of the only two scenes Terry Gilliam directed, the other one being the Three Kings scene. And the whole thing Mm -hmm. was just to make fun of Star Wars, which had just come out at the same time. Oh, I see. That makes a lot more sense. But I got to tell you, watching that as a four-year-old, that is like the scene that sticks out in my memory. Brian falling out of a tower and a complete random ass alien spaceship scooping him up at that exact moment in time. And it's, it's so bizarre <laughs> and it's so random, but I love it so much. It's so funny to me. It's so perfect. And once you said that it was a Terry Gillum thing, I was like, Oh, that makes more sense. Having seen Monty Python, that's the kind of humor. Right, it was. exactly. It's it's and and now for something completely different. It's that sort of thing. Yes. Yes. To interrupt your program to bring you something completely different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'd like to talk about how this movie was received in the time a little bit, because like anything um, that was popular and religious at that time. I'm looking at you, Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, religious groups hated this Jesus without Christ. understanding it, and most of the time without even watching this. This film was banned sure. in Norway. <laughs> How do you get 
banned in Norway. Norway are like the chillest people because they're cold all the time. So they're like, eh, we don't feel passionately about it. They felt passionately about this one. This movie was protested and written about in several different ways through several, several different religious fronts and groups. And the, the funniest thing about the whole thing was the Python's own reaction to this. You know, uh, the director, Terry Jones, was having a conversation with John Cleese and talking about how this film was having angry letters written about it. And like certain towns in England were saying this film is banned. It will not be playing in our movie theater. And those towns didn't have movie theaters in the first place. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. That's how up their own butts people were getting about this thing and so terry jones is telling john cleese about them and cleese's response is this is amazing for the first time in 2000 years they're unified (laughs) (laughs) yes and i think that uh that that sets the tone perfectly for what the uh what the pythons thought of of all the religious harumphing that came with their movie yeah i feel that's always the reaction when you try and undertake the Jesus story. For example, um, do you remember the backlash that came after the Da Vinci Code being published? Sure, yeah. And how everyone was, no, this is blasphemy, not my Jesus. He wasn't born via this thing. And it was a big deal and everyone had their different backlash to it. I feel it makes absolute perfect sense to me that life of brian would have a similar backlash of how dare you imply that jesus was just another messiah yeah totally (laughs) which isn't even what the movie implies but i think i think it's the closest thing that a lot of people were offended by oh yeah totally like like people people were getting up in arms about this without actually seeing it and again like like the pythons made a conscious decision to stay away from Jesus. The only times you see him are when he's a babe in the manger and when he's giving the Sermon on the Mount. And when he's giving the Sermon on the Mount, he's like, you know, 800 feet away to the point where 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 the focus of our, our scene is, the people can't even understand him. Right. Yeah. So, do we want to uh, get into why this film was cult? Yes. Andy, is this movie cult? <laughs> I think this movie is absolutely cult. Um, yeah. You know, I like to look at it through a couple of key requirements. Those being its budget versus what it made in the box office. The award hype it had. And if it is quotable. And something that's interesting is Monty Python, absol- or Life of Brian, I should say absolutely fails one of these regards this movie was a commercial smash hit it had a budget of four million dollars and walked away with 36 million wow yeah and and fun fact those four million dollars that uh were the budget of the movie came from george harrison of the beatles oh yeah it turns out he was such a huge monty python fan that when he heard that the original studio um, was dropping out and wasn't going to finance the movie, he created Handmade Films, which is the studio that made this movie, and financed it and paid a a, a total of $4 million for the thing to be made because he was afraid the movie would not be made otherwise, and he wanted to see it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I think that's great. That's so sweet. Yeah. I love that. So it, uh, it, it fails my, my financial requirement, but it succeeds in just about every way. This movie did not have a single award of, of any kind. Let's not even get into Oscars or Golden Globes. Like, like other movies we've listed have been at least, or other movies on our list have been at least like nominated for a Saturn Award or, or, or something like that. This movie had nothing, but it was a smash commercial hit. It is incredibly quotable and hilarious. And the Monty Python movies, we've got all three of them um, 
on our list for review. And the thing about them is Monty Python itself, Monty Python's Flying Circus. We've already discussed it. That alone, that TV show, that that sketch comic group is so cult and so baked into the collective unconscious that this movie slides in as being a cult movie on that merit alone. Absolutely. I 100% agree. Just by having the name Monty Python, you're like, oh, yes, that is cult. Right. (laughs) And it's got, like you said, it's got so many good quotes. My favorite of the whole movie was, I'm a Red Sea pedestrian. We had to pause so I could start breathing again after laughing so hard. Because that's my sense of humor. Weird, esoteric Bible quotes. Right. I think my favorite, um, there's the scene where Brian and Judith slept together, which I got to comment, that's some great camera work to hide his dick before the big reveal. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I was impressed. I was waiting for, for a little something, way more than I ever should pay attention to such a thing. And I got to say, Andrew, they, you're they, a married man, right? <laughs> they, uh, I, I just wanted to comment on that. The camera in that scene alone was, yeah. was perfect. Uh, but there's the scene where his mother starts arguing with the crowd and they're calling him the Messiah. And she goes, there's a mess in here, but there's no Messiah. <laughs> <laughs> so good. I love that. And then of course uh, you want to talk about the quotable thing. Uh, the song "Always Look on the Bright Side of Life," which was Always written for this movie. Really? Yeah, that's it, it. Was written by Eric Idle, I think, was the primary writer, and you know, I, I assume the rest of the Pythons had help. But that was written for this movie, and that is the one bit of this movie that um, moved over into Spamalot, which is the Broadway musical that they made about Holy Grail. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. How do they shoehorn it into Holy Grail? I don't remember at all. I've, I've seen Spamalot on Broadway, and I, I don't remember other than I know the song is in there. Fair enough. <laughs> well, Andrew, is it time to play a game? Yes, let's play our favorite game, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. So for those of you who aren't familiar with Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, it's where you take an actor in one film and try, and six moves or less, to connect that actor to Kevin Bacon and Andy. I think I can do it in two. Okay. Okay, so John Cleese is in George of the Jungle with Brendan Fraser. He plays the giant talk. I forgot that. He plays the giant talking ape. Or, I'm sorry, he plays the giant talking gorilla whose name is Ape. Yes. And then Brendan Fraser is in The Air I Breathe with Kevin Bacon. Okay. I've not heard of The Air I Breathe. I hadn't either. I googled. Is that cheating? <laughs> it's not cheating at all. And, you know, we we play this game because it's fun, but we are only human and can only know so many movies that Kevin Bacon has done. I don't think using the internet is cheating and I'm going to take an opportunity to own up to something I'm deeply ashamed about. Last episode, (gasps) what'd you do? Well, last episode I, uh, I had the movie crazy, stupid love as part of my answer. And I absolutely tried to bullshit knowing what that movie was about instead of just owning up that I had not seen it or (laughs) ever heard of it again. And I'm deeply well, sorry, and I promise I won't do it again. That makes sense, because when I asked you what Crazy Stupid Love was, you're like, it's a movie about crazy stupid love. It's got and an I was ensemble. Like, uh, okay. All right. And I kind of shrugged and left it alone, but that is hilarious. It's been eating me up. I feel awful about it. I don't agree with my choice to have done it. <laughs> well, you are absolved my son don't worry about it yeah <laughs> <laughs> i love that you bullshitted your way where you were like it's a thing i will say after i looked up the air i breathed because i was like kevin bacon with brendan fraser after i looked that up i did then read about the air i breathe so i do know what it's about well, there you go but... you're smarter than i <laughs> <laughs> 
right. So, so, so you've got two. I've also got two, and and I've seen all of the movies in this list. <laughs> uh huh. Sure. That's what you said last week too. Right. Um, so for my answer, I was going to point out John Cleese was in Shrek Three with John Lithgow. John Lithgow <gasps> is in like, like he, he's got like only a couple of lines as Farquaad in that movie, but he is in Shrek Three. It counts. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and John Lithgow was in Footloose with Kevin Bacon. So. He was. <gasps> I haven't seen Footloose. Whoa. Okay. Interesting. Um. So yeah, that's a big like contention in my life and in specifically in my marriage that I haven't seen Footloose because it is Alex's favorite movie right under Halloween. <laughs> um, okay. So it's like Halloween Footloose and I haven't seen Footloose and he's like, we need to rectify this. So the fact that it's on our list makes me very happy. Yeah, I was going to say, it has to be now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So for you and anyone else who has not seen Footloose, John Lithgow plays the uh, the reverend and is the primary antagonist who says there will be no dancing in this town. Got it. Yeah. Okay. I was about to make a bad joke and say, oh, so he's the guy who puts baby in a corner. But then I realized that that would be a terrible joke that would not be appreciated. Is dirty dancing on our list? I think it is. It better be. It's going to be now. <laughs> <laughs> you put it on the list and then that's the movie that our random movie collaborator chooses. Right. <laughs> All right. So shall we hand out awards? Yeah, let's get into, uh, as I said before, Monty Python's The Life of Brian received no awards of any kind. And that is... Oh awful to me given that this is such a beloved and classic movie so let's go ahead and give it some oscars of our own choosing yes i would like to award life of brian the oscar for least number of actors playing the most number of roles it's a that's a great award for it i mean you know we've, we've talked about I, i'm stealing your thunder go ahead please tell me why <laughs> <laughs> It's okay, I can share my thunder. There were moments in this movie where an actor would play a role, it would jump cut, and you would see that same exact actor in a different costume, in a different role. Right. (laughs) And that's fantastic to me. And it's so fun to watch and be like, oh, there's that actor again. Oh, there's that actor again. Oh, there's their actor. It's just fun. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you've got you've got the six dudes: Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Terry Gilliam, Eric Idle, Terry Jones, and Michael Palin. They are the Pythons, and this is their movie. This is their show. And and yeah, looking at it now, like each one of them, the one who plays the least is Graham Chapman because he's Brian, but even he plays biggest dickus for reasons that I (gasps) I don't understand. (laughs) I didn't even realize that. That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, He he only plays three roles, but then the rest, the other five Pythons, like they each play like between seven and like 13 individual roles all themselves. And it's, it's very fitting. I don't know if we have much movies aside from maybe Holy Grail that uh, would be able to contend with Life of Brian for that award. Yeah. That's great. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, So I would like to go ahead and give uh, Life of Brian the Oscar for Best Proof That Time Travel Exists. (laughs) And here's why. Watching the movie, uh, you get to the crucifixion scenes, and you get to the the scene where all the prisoners are standing in the square and told to, you know, line up and march. And you have all the scenes where the crowd is carrying their wooden crosses. And I would like to point out, uh, this movie is on Netflix. If you have Netflix, you can check it out at like all of these scenes, but specifically I'm looking at like the hour 19 mark. That's Adam driver. You know, I had to look up who Adam driver was because I'm a heathen and I was like, no, he totally is in this movie. And then I looked up when this movie was made and when Adam Driver was born. And no, that's not him. Right. Adam Driver, contemporary movie star of, 
you know, the Star Wars series and the show Girls and a whole bunch of stuff in his own right. The key word there being contemporary movie star. But you go you you go to where I, I said to go around like it's one hour, 19 minutes and like 50 two seconds is where I'm looking at it. And I'm looking at Adam driver with the long black hair and the nose and the facial hair. And I can't see his ears, but that's Adam driver, which means he's got big ass ears under that hair that there is no way that is not Adam driver (laughs) carrying a wooden cross in 1979. You will not be able to convince me otherwise. Well, I guess time travel exists then. And he looks really confused as well. So like, I, I think he just kind of like, this was some sort of, Kafka-esque like he woke up and it was 1979 and he didn't know why and he just was on set that day and ran with it <laughs> oh god what a terrible way to wake up in okay you have to wake up in and yeah if you could choose your least favorite time to wake up when would it be oh my least favorite time I mean and then your best favorite time I guess sure sure want. sure least favorite time I mean it's like probably 1933 <laughs> if I uh, if then? I wake up like if, if I travel through time and not space and I wake up in Florida, then yeah, Florida and the Great Depression or really any time before Ooh. 1950, because there was no Disney to make Florida worth being in. <laughs> True. OK, so if I travel in time, but not space. Oh, yeah. That could be yeah, interesting. Yeah, you've got some interesting ones. Because <laughs> I'm in Appalachia. Right. So, oh boy. Mm. Oh boy. That could be real nasty. Because <laughs> the part of North Carolina where I live does not coal mine, but they timber mine. So, anytime that's not modern, I would basically either be mining or married to someone who mined. So this does not look good for my economic status. Or your uh, feminist sensibilities, I'm sure. Nope, not so great enough <laughs> for that either. Uh, uh, to answer the other part of your question, when would I want to wake up? I, I would want to wake up and it's 196. I would want to wake up in Florida the week before Woodstock so that I had enough time to get my ass up to New York and watch that concert. Aww. So 67, 60, 68, whenever Woodstock was, um, that is the time I would, I would be down to wake up and find myself. That would be cool. Okay. Uh, I could wake up anytime. Ooh, probably like the nineties. Sure. Because feminism was like just becoming a thing that was starting to be celebrated. So it's not like it would be too, different of a coping mechanism for me to have to like deal with but then also the economy was still great so i would like invest in lots of stuff you got that clinton bubble yeah i would invest in everything but real estate and then i'd travel back in time and be hecka rich there you go (laughs) yeah or I just travel back in time and tell myself not to take on so much student loan debt but that's a whole other story i mean same (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all right well now that we've officially rambled that's all for this addi- edition of but Cult wait Fiction. <laughs> but wait never mind i lied we still got like a movie yes yes we do oh fuck yes we do <laughs> i appreciate that you were willing to go along with me for that 15 seconds where you didn't remember what i was talking about <laughs> Sorry, I was like, uh, we're officially rambling and we should probably cut all of this because it's not actually as funny as I thought it was going to be. Damn it. Nope. You can cut all of that. It wasn't good. Nope, it's all good. I'm keeping it. All right. So, yeah, let's. Uh, this is the part of the program where we pick our next movie and let the uh, psychic subconscious of Hollywood cult films decide for us through the appliance of a random number generator. <laughs> so we have, uh, I think, 292 movies on our uh, big cult movie list. And. That number just keeps getting bigger and bigger. <laughs> you only think that. It was that big to begin with. And I have randomized the list, and let's see what we got. Doodly, 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 doodly. 
And it is... <laughs> it's a big one. It's, it's one okay. that you're going to like. So we have number 191, which is Paul Verhoeven's Showgirls. Ah, everyone's got AIDS and shit. <laughs> Elizabeth Berkley tries is, her best. Ah, uh, she does try her best. Bless her heart. She tries so hard. Everyone's got AIDS and shit is my favorite line from that movie. <laughs> so I gotta tell you, Mariah just poked her head back out and went, Showgirls? Are you fucking kidding me? Showgirls? <laughs> Showgirls. Alex goes, Yo! Well, this is one of the big ones for you, isn't it? <laughs> Yes, I watched Showgirls uh, with a college friend of mine, and um, she and I, she was like, have you ever seen Showgirls? And I was like, no, ma'am, I haven't. And she goes, it is the campiest, most terrible thing. And I was like, let's watch it. <laughs> so I'm very excited to watch it again. All right. I, I can dig it. <laughs> All right. Now, can I close yeah. it out now? <laughs> Well, that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also follow, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time when we get our dresses from Versace. For Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Boyle. Hey, hi, hi.